0: Um, in response to some of the, the questions that came up yesterday, perhaps one very general answer is that I feel more and more that somehow we have to go back to, to beginnings, and I'm speaking here of how Buddhism, in particular, needs to find its own origins. The contrast between the sorts of societies in Asia where Buddhism has flourished up until now and the kind of modernity that we find ourselves in here today in the West and increasingly worldwide is such that most traditional religions are somehow thrown into question. Many of the traditional assumptions, and in Buddhism that would be assumptions about multiple lifetimes, different realms of existence, the idea of of liberation or nirvana being the, the breaking of the cycle of birth and death that many of these ideas are perhaps no longer relevant or even intelligible in the kind of world we live today. And yet, I suspect that for many of us, we still find when we, we read a classical Buddhist text, be it that of the Buddha, be it that in the Zen Tradition or the Tibetan tradition, we find passages that speak to us with an almost alarming clarity. And yet, very often, the next sentence somehow leaves us cold. It is as though there are elements within these classical traditions that still have an enormous power to speak to us, to speak to our condition here and now, to speak to us irrespective of the cultural worldview that we may hold. And yet they're all muddled up with texts and beliefs and dogmas that we struggle to fit into the way we experience ourselves, the way we look for wisdom and understanding. And there's often a, a conflict, I've experienced this continuously and still do, between this double voice almost that comes to us, that speaks to us in these Writings that we both respect and honour, and often at the same time feel slightly repelled by. So this, I think, calls for a certain amount of of sorting things out, of trying to to pass to um, to tease apart elements within this. Tradition that still seem very much alive, and other parts that feel almost like dead weight or dead matter that perhaps needs to to be cleared away. I've sometimes thought that Buddhism is in need of some very radical surgery. And in saying that, I'm also aware that the patient may not survive the operation. To what extent can we um, remove or amputate certain features of the tradition, such as the obvious example is that of rebirth, karma and so on. To what extent can we remove those things and the organism we call the Dhamma can still live? And I think that's a rather vital question. I don't have the answer at all. But perhaps the most reassurance we can have is that when we look at something like Buddhism over the length of its history, which stretches back nearly 2,500 years, we can see that it has encountered these kinds of life and death crises before. Each time the Dhamma has entered into another culture, and perhaps for us the most instructive example of that is when Buddhism entered China in about the third or fourth century of the Common Era, about six or 700 years after the Buddha's death, and succeeded over a period of two or three centuries to reconfigure itself in a way that was able, it was able to speak to the Chinese sensibility, which was very, very different to that of the Indian world in which it had first arisen. And through that dialogue between the Buddhist tradition and Chinese culture it gave rise to something new. Something quite different from anything that had gone before in India. And again a good example would be that of of Chan or Zen Buddhism but there are other examples too. And I think we can see the same in In Tibet, which also evolved its highly distinctive and unique form of uh, both teaching and also social organization, and so on. And so, there's a we can have a certain trust that the Buddhist tradition is sufficiently flexible, sufficiently imaginative to somehow be able to reinvent itself at times of transition without um, compromising itself in any essential way. The transition that we are now faced with, of course, in some respects, may be greater than any that has had to be faced in the past. And that's where we find ourselves, probably all of us, or at least those of us who, for whom our meditation practice is informed by Buddhist ideas. And the questions that have come up already and many of the things we're speaking about are tacitly attempts to articulate, to make intelligible these ancient ideas and values in our contemporary setting here and now. Now, I'd like to, uh, do, to continue today by exploring further this theme, which I hadn't intended really, but it seems to have worked out this way. The theme of death. And to to look, to ask ourselves, what do we find in uh, the Pali tradition particularly where we may gain some insight into how the Buddha understood the idea of death, not just as the physical ending of our lives, but as a metaphor for what prevents us from living fully here and now. And we find a very rich seam of ideas in the Pali texts that focus around this figure called Mara. Mara is, loosely speaking, the Buddhist equivalent of of Satan or the devil, and he is a figure, a kind of tricksterish figure, who periodically appears before the Buddha, engages in conversation, and at the end of this conversation usually disappears, having been seen through by the Buddha, Now, what is the connection between the devil or Satan and death? Well, the word Mara literally means the killer. Mara is rooted in the Sanskrit word murtyu, which means death. And it's an active, personalised form of that word. Mara is the killer sometimes you could almost translate mara as death if you wished but the mara kills us not because he cuts our throat or literally extinguishes our life but because he traps us he ensnares us he hooks us with his barbed hook. These are all metaphors that we find throughout these early texts. Mara is like a snare or a trap that's been put out by a hunter and catches animals unawares so that they can't move. The image is usually that of a deer, a very peaceful animal that doesn't bother anybody else. And yet, suddenly, snap! It's caught, and that is the snare or the trap of Mara. So this is not death yet for the deer, but it is the It's a point at which the deer becomes unable to move. The deer is stuck. The deer is incapacitated. It can no longer realise its deer-like nature. It can't wander freely through the forest foraging for food. It will starve. But in the end, of course, it will be taken by the hunter and presumably killed. So what's going on here? In what way do such things occur to us, say, in the practice of meditation? Now, you may have had the experience that you're sitting on your cushion, happily watching your breath as a deer might forage in the forest. It's all quite fine. And then suddenly you are caught by, let's say, a worry an anxiety a fear a longing a fantasy a desire or perhaps just by some inconsequential train of thought so rather than wrestling resting on your breath resting in the rhythm of your body resting in the sound of the trees. In a way, entering into a kind of flow of attention, of awareness, maybe sensitivity, inquiry. Suddenly you're stopped in your tracks and once that snare of worry, let's say, has got you, it's actually quite difficult to get out, and in fact, very often such a thing will um, will stay around. And the more we struggle with it, the more we say, oh, "Stop worrying about that. Um, I don't. I don't need to plan what I'm going to do in September when I have that meeting." The more that we we enter into a kind of aversive relationship with that trap the more that tends to tighten it Mara in this instance has now kind of got hold of us and in a way has somehow killed the meditation has killed that opening that sense of wonder that curiosity that presence it stopped, and we're stuck. And we can even feel this in our body. It sometimes feels as though um, these uh, mental um, traps uh, accelerate the heart, maybe cause us even slightly to, to perspire. Or we feel agitated, restless. We start suddenly getting pain in our knees. We want the thing to end. And this, I feel, is what the Buddha means when he speaks about the trap, the snare of Mara. So there's a kind of of inner death that is constantly lying in wait for us. In this sense, if Mara is a, a symbol or a personification of death, then as his polar opposite, as his counterpart, then what does that make the Buddha? Because remember, in most of these passages, there's a dialogic relationship between the two figures, Buddha and Mara. And if, Buddha, if Mara is death, then this implies that Buddha is life. Now this again is what I mean by trying to get back to the beginnings, the origins of the tradition. Rather than thinking of enlightenment as a sort of transcendence or in some way, in some traditions, as a kind of ceasing to be reborn in samsara which in a way sounds a bit like death perhaps we can reconsider the image of the buddha as a metaphor for living fully and totally another metaphor another way in which mara is is uh, de- depicted in some texts and there's one called the Padana Sutta, uh, which literally translates as the as the striving. And it's found in that body of discourses I mentioned on the first day, the Sutta Nipata, this oldest layer in the Pali materials. In this text, Mara is not called Mara, Mara is called Namuchi. N-A-M-U-C-I, Namuchi. And the text says, the Buddha was seated beside the Nerenjara River, immersed in meditation, and then Namuchi came up to him. Namuchi. Who the hell he? Namuchi is um, a figure, a, a minor god, from the Vedic uh, culture of India, Namuchi is the one who, um, who, who prevents the monsoon rains from falling. Sometimes Namuchi is described as the, the drought demon. The drought demon. And so in the Vedic myths, which predate the Buddha by a long, long time, Namuchi holds back the rain. Now, in India, even today, the whole of the survival of uh, society, of community, of life itself depends upon the monsoon rain. So, there's something very much in this image about life. And in fact, the word Namuchi. Has been glossed to mean the one who withholds the waters. And in the myth, it takes the god Indra, who's the king of the gods, to strike Namuchi with his Vajra, with his scepter, his thunderbolt, and on being struck by Indra's bolt, Namuchi releases the waters. So the waters then flow, pour forth. So if we take this example too, we find something similar that Mara, Namuchi, is anything within us that inhibits the flow of our life. And again, we can think of this uh, psychologically, which is perhaps nowadays our preference. We can think of it in terms, let's say, of what the Buddha calls the hindrances. And we've probably heard at one time or another of the five hindrances. Or sometimes Buddhism speaks about the obstacles to one's practice. Now if you think about it, a hindrance or an obstacle is something that prevents something else. It's it's a blockage. A hindrance prevents you from doing something. In the same way that namuchi prevents the waters of life from pouring forth. So what are these five hindrances? We have the first one being attachment, the second is uh, aversion, the third is restlessness, the fourth is lethargy or sloth, and the fifth is, is vacillation or doubt, the inability to decide. And all of these things are therefore uh, blockages that prevent our life from flowing freely. We get caught up in our attachment to whatever it might be, an idea, um, some sense pleasure, uh, our, our house, our friends, whatever it might be. And in Doing so, whenever that attachment kicks in, we're suddenly stuck again. And we see this, I think, very clearly when we practice meditation. We've noticed for ourselves also that when we get caught up in some vindictive thinking, some dislike or hatred or aversion to somebody who's who's done us wrong, The same kind of stuckness happens. And what you've probably also noticed is that these kinds of attachments and aversions tend to uh, become very repetitive. They go round and round and round and round and round. We keep repeating the same phrases. He said this. Or she did that. Or I really need this. I really want that. And we get caught in a kind of loop tape of our own minds. We go round and round and round. It doesn't. We get stuck in a rut. And although we're doing a lot, the mind's very active at these times, it doesn't actually get us anywhere. We don't actually uh, proceed. We just keep going over the same stuff again and again and again. Now this I think gives us a clue to the very idea of what is called sangsara, which is often spoken of in almost sort of cosmological terms as the cycle of birth and death. Going from one rebirth, dying, getting born again, dying, getting born again, as is a classic image in Indian thought. But I suspect this idea starts with that experience of repetition that is characteristic of attachment, aversion restlessness, laziness, worry, etc., etc., etc. I doubt it was the other way round, that people suddenly saw that the cosmos goes in these endless circles and sentient beings traverse through lifetimes and then notice, oh, that's interesting, my mind does the same thing. (laughs) I suspect very much it was the other way round. And it's the other way round the circularity of our own thought and behaviour that is what we are working with and what we can work with here and now. How do we get out of that circularity? That perhaps is the big challenge. How do I stop repeating myself? And it's not just... On a moment-to-moment thoughts spinning round in my mind sense. But so often we, in our social relations, in our conversations, in our work, in our um, you know, in, in, in our group and other activities, we find, after a period of months, after a period of years, perhaps, that we've been doing all these things, but in a weird way, we still feel like the person who started out doing these things so many years ago. I remember once someone, an elderly gentleman, told me of how he would he suddenly find himself at the age of 80 or 90. Um, as being very much the same as the little boy, he remembered all those years ago that nothing much had really changed. It was still the same. Conversations or ideas running through his mind. Still the same habits of behaviour. Still the same kind of stuff, just endlessly recycling itself. A feeling that somehow life had not really been fully lived. That we'd been somehow just running on the spot. Under the impression that we're very busy, very active, but at a deeper existential level, all we've been doing is, as it were, changing the decor, changing our clothing, our appearance, whereas something rather essential within us has remained pretty much stuck. Now, another image of water that we that we brought up yesterday was the idea that when the Buddha uh, spoke of his experience of of, of shifting from a place to a ground he also elsewhere describes this as like entering a stream. And in fact the first sort of uh, moment or or experience of of awakening, is described as entering a stream. And I doubt it's accidental that the Buddha selected this idea of a stream. In other words, a flowing body of water, which implies once again that until we somehow wake up to our ground, we have not entered into the flow of life. As long as we are uh, stuck in our sense of place, our our identity, whether it be a national identity, a social, a religious, a political identity, we've somehow crystallized around an idea or something relatively static that prevents us really from moving. So here too we have the same kind of metaphor at work. A movement from a place of stuckness, which we could think of as Mara, to a ground that is endlessly shifting Things are rising, are passing, are changing, transforming. And in this sense, I think this rather complicated technical expression, paticca samupada, conditioned arising, is really just a rather fancy way of saying life. Life is a constant process of flux and change and growth and birth and death and rebirth in that metaphorical sense. And so this awakening of the Buddha is not an awakening to some kind of grand transcendent reality, some higher truth or if it is to be spoken of in the, those terms, I think we need to think that that higher truth is actually this life that's already flowing and bubbling around us all the time that we've somehow failed to notice and we've somehow failed to grasp. Another problem with our idea of awakening or enlightenment or even the idea of the Buddha himself, is that we think of the Buddha as a kind of perfect person. And in fact, we are often encouraged in that view by a great deal of Buddhist teaching that represents uh, the Buddha as someone who has quite literally overcome all um, confusion and and uh, desire and hatred and everything. All of these things that we think of as obstacles or hindrances or defilements and Buddhism is full of words like this, all of those things simply don't happen for the Buddha anymore. He's managed somehow to discard all this stuff. But if that really were the case, that the Buddha was... A, a perfectly and totally wise, compassionate being in every microsecond of his existence, then wouldn't something essential to his humanity have been lost? To what extent could we think of the Buddha as human? And again, there's a conflict here because the Buddha's also saying all conditions are imperfect. All conditions um, are subject to dukkha, to, to suffering, to imperfection. Everything is flawed in some sense. And the Buddha, as a person in a body with a mind in this world, is likewise flawed in some sense. But what could that possibly mean? And if the Buddha was just as flawed as us, then why should we bother listening to what he has to say? Why don't we just turn to the person who lives next door and ask him for advice on how to live? Now the image of the Buddha's perfection is often symbolized in and uh in a iconographically it's a very you find this all over asia the icon the the the, the image or the picture of the buddha overcoming mara con- the conquest of mara and you have the buddha seated on a throne his right hand is touching the earth his left hand is like this i think He's got the usual rather serene smile. But around him, you'll see there is a halo of demonic figures. Some of them are grimacing and threatening him. Others are firing arrows. Some are holding up swords and spears and axes. They're basically giving him a bit of a hard time. And yet the Buddha just sits there as though this was of no consequence at all. Now this is usually taken to mean that when the Buddha became, the Buddha, when he became awake, when he became fully awake, these forces were overcome. No longer was he subject to such things. They had in the words of the Pali Canon, which is a common expression, all these things had been cut off like a palm stump, never to arise again. And this is an image of perfection. But when we read through the early texts that talk about Mara, we find that Mara does not just appear to the Buddha before the awakening, which would seem to be obvious, but Mara also keeps appearing to the Buddha for the rest of his life. The, the Buddha's out teaching one day to his monks and we're now supposedly have got this perfectly enlightened person And then it says Mara came up to him. Or the Buddha in one occasion he suffers from a rock being dropped on him or falling down the hillside whichever that strikes his ankle. He collapses onto the ground in great pain and then Mara says to him. I can't remember the exact text but it's something like Oh dear you're really hurt now Mara's voice is often the voice of concern Mara isn't coming to the Buddha and saying hey Buddha what about you know going off somewhere with that pretty nun Mara's voice is often rather rather compassionate you shouldn't be making you shouldn't push yourself so hard I mean there's a lovely example here somewhere where he says, um, this is the passage I I, I mentioned. He says, Mara came up to me and started talking in words appearing to be full of sympathy. Oh, you're so thin and pale, he said. You must be nearly dead. Oh, it would be so much better to live. You could do so much good by leading a spiritual life. I mean, that's the voice of Mara. I don't know if you've read some of the accounts of the Christian desert fathers. But one of the motifs that runs through that is very similar. The, the monk or the hermit is in his cave in the Sinai desert. And then there's this magnificent vision of the angels and the host of God. And the monk says, be gone, devil. So Mara isn't just all the bad stuff. Mara is the trickster. Mara is immensely slippery. Mara is protean. In other words, can change his shape all the time. Same in Milton. If you read Paradise Lost, Satan is, is able to shift into any form that might work at a particular moment. So Mara doesn't just have horns on his head, but very often can take the appearance of someone kind and sympathetic. Mara is terribly tricky. And so we find these passages after the Buddha's awakening, on numerous occasions, right up until shortly before he dies, of Mara appearing to him conversing with him now what can this mean if on the awakening Buddha overcame Mara destroyed Mara so that these things would never arise again clearly they do arise again it points I think to a rather different notion of what the Buddha's freedom consists of. And one of the questions yesterday was this business of, you know, it says that the in this awakening, there is no desire. There's no craving. Now, is that literally the case? Or do we have to think about that in another way? If... Mara, this this tricksterish demonic potential or voice is constantly coming even to the Buddha, what does it mean to say that he is free from Mara? I think particularly in the way we now understand the evolution of the human organism, the human being, as having evolved over millions of years from um, more simple forms of life, that things like uh, greed and hatred uh, and egoism, which are considered to be the, the, the baddies in Buddhism, that these things have their origin surely in our own evolutionary past that greed, in other words, getting what you want to survive, hatred, getting rid of those who threaten your survival, egoism, the kind of engine that drives you to keep going until you've got what you want. All of these things, it seems, had survival advantages in the language of of, of neo-Darwinian thought. In other words, they're they're powerful and they're still around now because they're part of our own legacy as sentient creatures. The problem is, for those of us who pride ourselves on being cultured, um, who seek values such as wisdom, compassion, tolerance and so on, peace in the world, these drives have somehow exhausted their usefulness. I think one could probably make a case that the world's religious and spiritual traditions are all methods to try to contain the, this inheritance of greed and hatred and egoism by imposing moral rules, ethical standards, Um, religious values and so forth and so on. So if we understand Mara as being embedded in our biology, in our reptilian brain stem, it seems unlikely that just by sitting beneath a Bodhi tree and watching your breath or gaining even some deep insight into your your life, that that will somehow eliminate or destroy all of these deep instinctual drives. It would seem perhaps to be more effective for us to have some sort of lobotomy. But whether meditation alone can do that, that sort of inner surgery, I doubt Now there is a passage also in the Padana Sutta where we find um, another image of what it means to go beyond craving, to go beyond desire and aversion and all these things, which doesn't imply that we have to destroy them This is the image that's used. It comes at the very end of the text. And in this dialogue, again, the Buddha's chatting away to Mara. Then Mara realizes that he's he's not really getting his way. So he goes off somewhere. He goes to one side and he says to himself, I remember once seeing a crow hovering over a lump of fat on the ground. Food, it thought, but the lump of fat turned out to be a rock, hard and inedible, So the crow flew away in disgust. I too, says Mara, have had enough. I'm like that crow pecking at a rock. I'm finished with Gautama. (laughs) Now this metaphor suggests that the Buddha is freed from these things, from craving, etc. Not because he has somehow managed to obliterate them or wipe them out, but because he's found a way of being with them where they can no longer affect him. Which, of course, comes to exactly the same thing. If I can experience the arising of craving and not get caught up in it and remain simply conscious of it as these thoughts and feelings arise and then, as is their nature, fade away then I am just as free from it as if it had never arisen at all. And again, I think this is something that we're not talking about purely at the elevated level of the Buddha's experience. But this is something that can be very useful for each of us in every moment of our lives. And we probably have had times in our meditations, maybe even over the last couple of days, where we have found ourselves witnessing this stuff that's bubbling up in our thoughts and yet not being taken over by it and instead noticing it for what it is, being aware of it, Being fully conscious of it, but not being seduced by it. Not being ensnared by it. And this is really, I think, the whole um, uh, aim, in a way, of this practice of mindfulness and awareness. It's to recollect that this is just the play of the mind, or the play of the brain and I can see it for what it is and if I notice it I can observe it as it does its thing and then at a certain time fades and disappears so in other words we can think of these uh, aversions and attractions and so on as like the crow that's trying to somehow pick our brain, as it were, trying to gain some purchase on our minds. And we have the freedom either to let that happen or not. And that freedom lies not in shooting the crow, but in resting in a frame of mind where the crow can't land. Now it often feels to me when I'm meditating that my mind is like a sort of landing strip for Mara. (laughs) A heliport. All runways are free. Come in. But uh, there are moments where somehow we are alert enough not to be taken in. Now, the problem is that what often um, enables these uh, thoughts and emotions to take hold is precisely because our mindful awareness has lapsed. In other words you might have noticed this too, you're sitting in meditation, everything's going fine and then suddenly you come to and you are in the grip of some very powerful fantasy. But you don't remember when that fantasy began. It's as though you've sort of nodded off for a bit and then you come back with a jolt and you're caught up in this theatre. And it's very, very strong by then. It's woken you up from your reverie. In the, um, the writing of a, an 8th century Buddhist monk called Shantideva, called the Avatara, the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life, Shantideva describes this. He says it's like mindfulness is like the guard the watchman that stands at the gateway of the senses, constantly alert to what he calls the bandits of unawareness. The bandits of unawareness. And the bandits of unawareness, he says, lie in wait for the guardian at the gateway of the senses to fall asleep. And as soon as they spot that, whoom, in they come to the house of your mind and to, to steal its treasures. It's a beautiful image. And I think it's also psychologically quite accurate. The problem is not that our mindfulness is somehow not up to the task, but that so often... Mindfulness falls asleep. And self-evidently, if our mindfulness falls asleep, we don't notice that because the very noticer has fallen asleep. We've drifted off. We've sort of become spaced out. And then we're in all this turmoil suddenly after some seconds or minutes have elapsed. Hence the, the emphasis in, uh, in all forms of Buddhist meditation for constant vigilance whether we're just sitting in Zen or we're doing mindfulness or whether we're doing uh, Vajrayana practice. All of these things although they might be quite different in their techniques are all exercises in Vigilance, heedfulness, attentativeness, presence of mind. Mindfulness is perhaps better translated as presence of mind. A constant presence of mind, a constant alertness. Not just an alertness to what's going on around us, but an alertness to what is happening within And it's this alertness that enables us to understand what's happening. And this is um, summed up by, by, uh, in, in these texts with Mara, that at the end of the dialogue, the discussion between the Buddha and Mara, the Buddha will often just say, I know you Mara, I know you. Or sometimes Mara says, he knows me. <laughs> In other words, there's a what what is liberating is not the getting rid of something, but what but our capacity to understand what's going on, our capacity to see more clearly what's happening. And that I think is what this practice is very much about, and what we're training ourselves to do on a retreat like this is to still the mind because obviously if we're constantly agitated and distracted, very difficult to see clearly what's going on. So we calm and still our attention in order that we can see more clearly, more vigilantly, more moment to moment to moment what's happening. And that, and it's it's within that kind of awareness that we begin to discover the freedom, not to get caught up in our emotions and our craziness and our neurosis and our fantasies and so on. We don't suppress them because that's also equally destructive and counterproductive to have an aversive relationship to these things is just really about uh, denying them rather than affirming them we're not entering into war with ourselves but we're entering into another relationship altogether in which we neither affirm nor deny these things we're fully Conscious and present to whatever happens. And in this sense, there's something in the practice of mindfulness which is to do with a very profound acceptance of what's happening. Not acceptance in the sense of resignation, but the ability to say yes, or as they say in German, Ja sagen, to say yes to what's taking place. You've probably noticed that there's another voice that tends to say if I didn't have this thing going on in my life now if I didn't have this pain in my knee then I'd be able to meditate. Then it'd be easy. But that's a complete cop-out. The fact is we, we practice mindfulness or we try to unconditionally under whatever conditions are happening now however difficult and painful they might appear to be able to say yes this is how it is now whether I like it or not and this is where the practice begins and that's the only place the practice can begin is where you are right now that seems to be a good enough place to stop